All right, here we go. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. 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 Welcome to Rants with Justin and Joe. And today we are uh, fortunate enough to have the most people ever in our Rants uh, podcast. Uh, we have four and we will be talking about their experiences, maybe getting into graduate school or while graduate school or post graduate school. Um, and I'll let them introduce themselves in a second. But first, I'll go through any technical, logical or logistical things that Joe has to talk about. I love that I get the boring logistical stuff. But uh, hey, if you're catching this live and you'd like to ask the panelists questions because this is discussion driven and this is a great opportunity to ask any questions you might have about you know, advanced degrees and, and graduate school and behavior analysis, you can do that using the Q&A option uh, via Zoom. You could put it in the chat, but we tend to miss those because the chat gets flying and it's hard to keep track of those. But the Q&A signals us that there's a question there. Uh, if you're listening to this via the podcast, well, you know, you missed out. Come live next time so you can ask the question. So if you hear this and you're like, oh, I would have asked this question. Well, come live next time. And if you want CEUs for any of the rants, you can purchase or download those uh, at www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast. Uh, I, think, I think that's all the logistics. Did I miss anything? No, you got, you got a good job with all the boring stuff. You're welcome. You're welcome. Maybe next, uh, maybe after our breaks, I'll the boring stuff but, but probably not i'll mess it up and so uh when joe and i were deciding what to do on i think we look at like 10 episodes we thought it'd be great and informative for those people who are newer to our field to know what graduate school is like and different experiences that people have and i wanted and joe wanted to bring in people who are just immensely talented uh, as clinicians, as researchers, as professionals who did an amazing job while they were in graduate school or as they were in graduate school. And so we brought uh, some of the top people uh, to speak on this topic and uh, I won't say order. Uh, it should be noted that we are connected to all of them in some way or another. Uh, so I'm not gonna hide behind that. We know who these people are, but they are who, if you are wanting to be a graduate student, these are the people that you should emulate what their careers looked like in graduate school. And Wonderful models for sure. And postgraduate school. So with that, what we do is um, we know you very well, but our audience both live and via podcast probably don't. So if you can just spend, you know, a minute or two each just talking about who you are, what, where you went to graduate school and, you know, anything else, that would be great. And I'll let you guys decide the order of that. I can start as the current uh, graduate student. Um, my name is Anna Dotson. I am in my second year of an approximately three-year uh, master's in behavior analysis at the University of North Texas. Um, as Justin said, I do have an affiliation um, with Autism Partnership Foundation. Um, when I graduated from undergrad, I spent two years at APF's uh, training academy. Um, and I was working directly with uh, children with autism and receiving really extensive supervision um, during that work. 
Um, and I also participated in um, graduate level, level seminar classes. Um, that was part of the training academy. Um, so I contacted the behavior analytic literature and also learned about the science of behavior analysis as I was actually doing it. Um, so I feel really, really fortunate to have had that experience um, before going to graduate school um, because it's really grounded everything that I'm learning in the classroom in that clinical practice um, and has really helped me kind of bridge what I'm learning in the classroom to uh, my work. Um, and some of the experiences that I have had thus far at UNT, um, one is working as a graduate teaching assistant um, for an undergraduate class um, at UNT in behavior analysis, which has been super fun. Um, and I was only in person, it's UNT is an in-person program. I was only in person for about six months before COVID happened. Um, so my practical experience, some um, has been in person. Um, I was working at a clinic providing services for children with autism called Easter Seals. Um, and that was in person. And then I kind of had to shift my practical experience to online um, and was fortunate to have an opportunity to work as a remote teaching assistant at Morningside Academy. Um, and that's working with um, elementary school students with and without learning disabilities. So I kind of got to jump into precision teaching and direct instruction um, and working with a different population there. Um, and I'm also working with a clinic, an ABA clinic remotely helping them with their staff supervision. Uh, so that's been, sorry, sorry staff training. Um, so it's been really fun. Um, and, uh, oh, I am also gonna be working on my um, experimental thesis um, starting next year with Dr. Shala Lai. And yeah, that's me. <laughs> I'll probably uh, piggyback off of Anna there as also being a current grad student. Um, so actually a lot of my experiences do overlap with what Anna experienced. I also was a um, fellow at Autism Partnership Foundation. I probably should mention that my name is Austin Javed. I should have mentioned that first, but um, and currently as a second year doctoral student at Endicott College's program in applied behavior analysis uh, with Justin Leaf as my advisor. I've kind of taken a particular interest in effective and efficient instructional strategies a little bit interest now in kind of how we look at mastery criterion and um, have been diving into that. And kind of what Anna mentioned, a lot of my focus has been now through um, remote means. So looking at kind of teleeducational models to do that. Um, in terms of other interests, I've also kind of dove into like conceptual issues and that's been fun in grad school and I've had a lot of fun uh, with the teaching experiences that I've had. and. Uh, yeah, I think that's about it. And on the side, I'm also a behavior analyst at a school for individuals with disabilities. And I won't go any further. I can jump in next. Um, hey, everyone. I am uh, Wes Lowry. I am a, uh, <clears throat> I finished my graduate program back in 2014 from the University of North Texas. So go Ming Green. We just passed the first round of NCAA tournament. So I'm pretty stoked about that. Um, yes, sir. Thank you, Joe, for that. Um, man, my experience is pretty wide. Um, I, upon, well, within graduate school, I tried to kind of get, get my hands in uh, as many labs as possible. So a little bit of experience with that. I'll go into a little bit of detail more later throughout the talk. Um, but upon graduating, um, I worked at, at Easter Seals as well, uh, doing a clinical setting. Um, and then I did some in-home um, as well with um, some clients from Autism Partnership. Um, did some training with, uh, with them back in the day as well moved out to uh, California to uh, start up the the uh, San Diego region for um, another uh, ABA early childhood uh, 
uh, therapy provider. Out here in San Diego, we started out with about three clients back in 2015. Now we're expanded out to 280 clients, I believe, uh, covering San Diego, Riverside, and the Inland Empire. Um, so that's been a plus. And then just recently, I've been transitioning into um, applying behavior analysis within health, sports, and fitness um, using the methods of physician teaching um, for um, improving um, athletic performance, um, looking at nutrition and behavior, um, but also overall uh, total wellness. I guess that leaves me. My name is Danielle LaFrance. Um, I have had a long and winding road in behavior analysis. Um, I recently graduated from a doc program, so I'll try to give this to you in a nutshell. Um, I started off in behavior analysis in Canada, working in in-home programs for children. Um, I did the frontline therapy for a good number of years. Um, took some classes in behavior analysis at my French campus university, um, and I kind of accidentally fell into um, the work that I was doing at that time. And didn't I don't think I ever really made the connection that some of the classwork I was doing and taking was related to my clinical work. There just wasn't a huge emphasis on it. Um, but I fell in love with the work um, really because of the outcomes that we were achieving with these young kiddos. And I decided I you know, was committing myself to that. So I worked, continued to work and um, moved up into a trainer position. I did that for about four years and then decided I wanted to pursue my master's degree. So I applied to a few programs in the US. Um, the, the options are pretty limited in Canada. They were then and they remain to this day, unfortunately. But I got accepted at uh, Florida Institute of Technology, and I went there, did my master's degree under the co-advisement of Drs. Matt Normand and David Wilder. And while I was there, I worked with an entirely different population. I worked with adults in adult day training centers, so more of a group setting, a lot more um, community type work. Um, so that was a cool experience for me. And I also got to do an internship for a stint at the New England Center for Children where I worked in their day program with children kind of in between ages. So they were about 10 or 11 years old up into high school age. So that was a really cool experience. I got to manage some cases there. I got to learn some really fantastic stuff. And then after I graduated from, with, with my master's degree, I moved to Sacramento, California and um, started working in agencies here. The first one was a site-based program. And I eventually became the coordinator of that site-based program and then moved on into a different agency and a director type of position, director of clinical services. Um, again, serving the lifespan. So my, my experiences vary in terms of the demographics and the populations that I've served as well as the settings. And then of course, countries that I've served in. Um, also for full disclosure, you should probably know uh, my husband is Dr. Caio Miguel. And I have learned to speak Portuguese fluently, and I also serve clients in Brazil in a consultation model. Um, so I've been in director positions for the last 10 years, managing agencies, overseeing the training of clinical staff. Um, I took about an eight-year break between my master's and my doc program. And at the encouragement of Dr. Jim Carr, finally made the decision, pulled the trigger to get into that doctorate program, got accepted at Endicott, which was just phenomenal. This is where I met Joe and Justin. Um, it was a fantastic experience, and I was advised by Dr. James Carr and Mary Jane Weiss simultaneously. Um, so now I'm about a year out from graduation, and, you know, I had big plans and hopes and dreams, and I'm sure like everyone else, the pandemic kind of came along and upended everything. So that's me in a nutshell. 
Well, I just want to thank you all for those wonderful introductions and just taking the time and making the space for this today, because I feel like there's uh, not really a lot of information out there that's easily accessible for people that might be interested in getting a, a graduate degree or a, advancing their academic education in the field. So uh, that was one reason why we wanted to put this panel together uh, to give everyone an opportunity to potentially ask questions or have something out there that if there are questions that they could go to it. So that is also my plug for if you have questions, throw it in the Q&A. Uh, because this is a wonderful opportunity with wonderful professionals with a wide range of experiences uh, and different spaces where they are in terms of their education. So uh, a wonderful time to ask those types of questions. So I'll go ahead and, and lead it off um, with something that I just had prepared as so we can give people time to let those questions roll in uh, and try to start a little bit general so you can take it whichever way you would like it. But what are some of the reasons you decided to pursue a graduate degree in behavior analysis? And again, I tried to intentionally leave it broad because you know we try to go where the discussion will take us. Uh, and I'll give you some time to put your thoughts together as I continue the sentence as long as I can to give you that time. You I wanna go for it? Go for it. Yeah, sure. I can take a crack at it. So I think, I think this is a really personal decision for everyone, right? It, it really depends on what your short and long-term plans are. Um, and for me, I am kind of addicted to learning. I love being a student. I love the contingencies of academia being a student. Um, it, I like to challenge myself. Um, so for me at every stage, even though it took long pauses, I think the impetus for me every time I decided to go to grad school, so for my master's degree, and then again for my dissertate or my, my doc program, um, it was really to learn more, to deepen my, my understanding of the science underlying our practice, um, to push myself to be a better behavior analyst, and certainly for the doc program to round out my skill set um, because I had been a clinician for so long and I had been training clinicians for so long that the piece that was really missing for me was that research aspect. I had done research, I had been involved in the peer review process, um, but I, I felt like it was, an, it was on the equal footing, right? I didn't feel like I was equally rounded out across those domains. And my personal philosophy has always been, um, you know, in order to be a good effective behavior analyst, you have to also be a good effective scientist, right? You have to be able to consume the literature and contribute to the literature. So for me, that was the major impetus behind pursuing that doc program. I think for me, um, it, was, it was a little bit of a different approach. Um, <clears throat> I didn't necessarily kind of know that I wanted to go into into the behavior analysis degree as a with, with knowing that I was going into graduate school when I first got into it. Um, for me, it was more of you know where 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 I was from, where I grew up. There wasn't a ton of positive examples in regards to um, what to do outside of high school, let alone what to do you know outside of college. So, you know, in my mind, I knew I wanted to be that role model, I wanted to be that different person in regards to, you know, being an example, you know, coming from my community, you know, from a specific culture. Um, I wanted to show that, yeah, where I started, right, and that's a long story um, in regards to, you know, coming up in grade school and stuff like that, it's, it's a little bit of backstory behind that. But where I started from and then realizing that, yes, I do have this opportunity to go into graduate school um, and go into higher education and, and, and into higher learning. Um, let me try to tackle that. 
Um, in the mix of all of that, right, I was able to then, you know, find behavior analysis, which was a deep passion of mine. Um, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't know how to really phrase it prior to, but once I came up on the, uh, uh, um, a couple of courses, it really solidified it for me to say, okay, hey, this is this is where I think I can take it um, in regards to, you know, kind of my my goals, my personal um, sort of um, achievements, um, and then sort of taking it that way. So it was it was it was it, it wasn't as um, academic as maybe some you know some of the other responses uh, may be, but it was more of a I want to be an example. I want to be a role model. Um, and I think that I could have done it and I was able to do it. That's, that's, that's where the passion for grad school specifically uh, came about for me. Yeah, and I'll just add, I guess that, uh, you know, I, I think for, for people that are on the fence as to like, should I go to grad school, should I not? Especially, especially when you're in that realm of like doing a doctoral program. I would say it's like, it's not like one of those things where you're like, uh, you know, I'm not sure if I want to get a PhD or not. You know, it's like, you know, I, I think if you're on the fence, then, then there's probably probably an issue there. I mean, I, for in my experience uh, at Endicott College and and with with my cohort specifically, which is a phenomenal group, is that everyone is just really excited about learning more about behavior analysis and applying it in different ways. And I think people just get pumped up about behavior analysis and finding ways for it to come to life in different arenas. And I think that's what's been sort of, in my experience, I can say it's about every single individual that is in my cohort. Like, I think that's what really makes this um, a special experience. It's not just about like, oh yeah, you know, I just want to get my PhD. Um, it's like, you know what, what, what are the causes that I'm going to champion? What are the areas that I want to dive deeper into and, and how am I going to do that? And so I think for people that are thinking about, um, especially at the doctoral level as, as to going further, I think really think about your why. And, and reflect on that um, because it's not just like, yeah, I'm going to spend all this money, all this time, all this energy just to like, you know, just to do it. Uh, I think there's got to be some some other uh, motivating variables there. So that's just my sort of plug there and piece of advice. I would like echo that sentiment about um, where you were talking about um, finding your passion like within behavior analysis, um, because I kind of stumbled into the field which is in a way that a lot of other people do, which is that entry point uh, with autism. Um, a lot of people learn about behavior analysis through working with children with autism. Um, and I think having that experience, I basically learned enough to know that I didn't know very much about it. Um, and so I wanted to go to grad school because I want, I was like, wow, I want to learn more. And like, I wanted to learn about all the different ways, like you were saying, awesome, that it can be applied. And I think that was one of the biggest things that I've learned in grad school is that applied behavior analysis in its application to individuals with autism is like a very important piece of the pie, but it's only one piece of the pie. Um, and I like the program that I'm in because the degree is in behavior analysis, not just applied behavior analysis and not just autism specific. Um, and so I'm kind of seeing through like my journey and also the journey of a lot of the people in the program of people finding their niche that might not be autism. Um, like Wes, you were talking about like sports and applying precision teaching to sports, like being able to um, kind of find those different um, niches that you might not be able to if you weren't pursuing um, a graduate degree. I think what's clear is your guys' passion for the field. And I think that's that's so important. And 
refreshing to see that, you know, uh, why we all got into it. And, and I love hearing that. Uh, awesome touched a little bit on this, but I think it'd be good to get everyone's uh, perspective on it. And we have a question from the audience. Uh, what is the one piece of advice you, you would give someone who is considering starting a doctoral program? I'm going to add or a master's program, but is not sure if they should do it. That's a great question. That's a tough one, right? I mean, I think, I, I don't know if you all noticed, but I was vigorously nodding my head yes as Awesome was talking about that why piece. Like you have to know your why. Um, I don't think you can be on the fence about putting all of that time, energy, effort and making the sacrifices required to do well in grad school, whether it's a master's program or a doc program, if you're kind of not sure about it, you've got to fully commit and throw yourself into it. And I think you've got to keep your, your goal, your why in mind the whole time. Because sometimes that's what's the only thing that's going to get you through. It's, it's hard. It's hard work, right? So I think you have to be really clear about that why. And like I said, I think it's it's personal decision for everyone, right? All of us had different motivations for pursuing grad school. None of them is better or worse than the other. Um, but it is in consideration of your own short and long-term goals as well as what that fit is going to be for you. So piece of advice number one is crystallize that why um, and then fit that into your short and your long-term goals and then go for it. I think um, kind of like an obvious why for graduate school is sometimes like, because I want the degree, <laughs> you know, like, because I want to be a P I want to be a doctor of behavior analysis. I want to have the master's degree and that's a great goal, but that's a long-term goal. Um, and I think thinking about like, what does the day-to-day -day life of a graduate student look like? And there needs to be like reinforcers that are maintaining those behaviors, or it's gonna be really hard when you're in a four-year program and you're like, I just want that degree. And all of the things that are happening in your day-to-day -day life, you don't enjoy that much. So like, for example, like there's a ton of reading. You are gonna be reading all of the time. Like, do you enjoy doing that? Um, and like, that's like, is that something that you enjoy? Do you enjoy being in class? And do you enjoy having discussion with your peers? Like I went to an in-person program because I wanted to literally be in the classroom talking with everybody. That's definitely something that also occurs in an online program, but like, do you enjoy doing that? Is that something that um, you want to be doing for like a very large chunk of your time for a pretty large part of your your life like um just thinking about like what is my life actually going to look like as a graduate student and am i going to enjoy those things not just like having the degree and all of the awesome stuff that happens once you get the degree i i love those responses and and i if i can i'd like to add reach out to people that have taken the plunge uh like you all uh and and or opportunities like this to really have that discussion and see what might have led them to make the decision to take that plunge and also reach out to other people who decided not to uh and what their rationale was for for not doing not deciding to go get their phd or get their masters or maybe even the, your bachelors uh, i think take advantage of those opportunities to maybe learn from them as well uh and i'd like to uh, I think this kind of leads into another question uh, that what were some of the things that you looked for uh, in graduate programs when you were making your decision like where to apply or where you might be interested in, in pursuing your advanced degree or your graduate 
advanced graduate. I, graduate refers to master's and PhD, so I'm never really sure how to, so we'll just call it graduate. What did you look for in the programs when you're deciding where to apply for your graduate degree? I like that you're being so inclusive to try to <laughs> <the> master's student. <laughs> Um, I can take a step at this one. I think I, I think for me, one of the one of the most important things that I was looking for was um, versatility and diversity. Some of the programs I was looking at, where you had to apply to that specific like professor or that specific track, and you didn't have the option to kind of uh, jump around and figure out what you wanted to do, um, or give you some time to kind of grow and flourish in one area, or maybe kind of help develop in another area. So for me, the reason why I selected uh, the graduate program that I went to was that I had the opportunity and the options to kind of work within early childhood, but then also, uh, you know, do some, you know, animal and dog training, but then look at experimental, but then look at, you know, a second language, some, some stuff like that, right? So for me, it was, you know, not really having a ton of information prior to starting my graduate program and really having the option to, um, kind of get my hands or get my, you know, feet dirty or, uh, you know, within, you know, across multiple sort of uh, areas of, of, of interest that I had at the time. The other thing I'll add is that I would highly recommend talking to people that have either gone through the program or that are in the program right now. Um, I think it's one thing to talk to professors and other faculty, but take a deep dive into talking to actual students and getting their experience. I think one of the most critical aspects for me and sort of and, and going through the Endicott program right now is just having an amazing um, support group and also the faculty promoting a very collaborative environment. Like it's, it's so critical. I mean, if I was in a grad school program where, where it's, you know, it's really hostile and it's just like this really competitive feel, I think that would be really difficult to, to deal with, but I have, you know, the exact opposite experience. So I would say, look for a program where there's this emphasis on collaboration, you know, between different faculty, between other students. And like, you know, just the other day I was um, meeting with a group of people and, and we're all like, um, you know, some of us are in a lab and some of us are outside the lab and we're all talking about, again, coming back to a cause, a why. And it doesn't matter that we have different advisors. It doesn't matter um, that we're, some of us are in different years. We're just taught, uh, or that we could be in different years, that it's just about what is the why. And so I think finding that collaborative environment, talk to students that are in that program, is it collaborative? Talk to the faculty as well, but definitely get that inside perspective as to what the environment is like. I think if I can add something, um, you know, something else that springs to mind for me, especially in relation to the goals that I had, right, for pursuing that doctorate degree. For me, it was really important who I was going to work with. Didn't matter where, right? It was about the who. So I mentioned earlier, you know, Dr. Jim Carr was, was the one who gave me the nudge to finally pull the trigger and pursue that doc program and apply, right? It was really, really important to me that I got to work with him being the researcher that he is, but also that I got to work with someone like Mary Jane who is really interested in evidence-based practices. And that's kind of my bag, right? I mean, my history as a clinician has been about really looking at those procedures that are most effective. So I had this really nice marriage, if you will, of mom and dad in my doctorate program. But then I also got to work with amazing faculty like Justin Leaf, like Jonathan Tarbox, like Jill Harper, like Sung Khan, right? 
Um, and then I also met this amazing community in Austin. I think you spoke to it so beautifully. It's so collaborative at Endicott. The culture that's been developed there is one of support and collaboration. And I think that just exponentially increases your learning opportunities um, and allows you to, to spread your wings in ways that maybe you didn't expect. I think um, if you're able to go to like interview weekend for a program, that's a really awesome opportunity to talk to current students in the program because um, maybe you don't have access to them otherwise. Um, so I would definitely recommend if you're offered um, an interview to go to interview weekend to go to the social events that are part of interview weekend. Um, so you can get like a candid kind of uh, um, explanation of kind of how the program is and, and what kind of students are there. Um, I think also if you are thinking about what grad school you want to go to and you're already working with behavior analysts that you look up to and they're basically they're kind of um, exemplifying the type of behavior analyst that you would like to be, um, then ask them where they went to graduate school. Um, that was a big reason for uh, me choosing UNT was there were a lot of UNT graduates that worked at APF and they were just really fantastic behavior analysts that had this kind of behavior analytic worldview that I wanted. So I was like, where did you go? Where did you learn this? I know that they had a very long and expansive learning history, but UNT was like a little part of that. Um, so that was a big reason why I chose the program that I did. I think there's so much beautiful stuff said, and uh, one thing that stood out to me is the who, and uh, you know, you see a lot of times uh, online or when you're talking to people of where they want to go. To me, it never meant, I've never cared about uh, geographically where I was, it was where, who I was going to be working with, because that's who you're going to be committed to for two to seven years, possibly, and so I know when I looked at it, I moved from Southern California to Lawrence, Kansas, and because I just wanted to work with Jim uh, Sherman and that's and everyone else at KU. So I, I think that's a really uh, valuable point is, you know, do your homework and see um, who is who who you want to be committed to for a little while, because as one of you said, there are sacrifices that come I and mean, you guys are painting this beautiful picture, but it's not always easy. There's there's some sure sacrifices uh, personally. Uh, emotionally, I'm sure, financially in this, in this, uh, getting your graduate degree. And so you want to be with those people that you respect and look up to and, and want to emulate. Another question uh, from the audience members are, uh, I know that some of you, some of you have done in-person pre-pandemic pre grad programs and then some virtual online grad programs. For those of you who have experienced both, what are some of the pros and cons to, you know, in-person brick and mortar versus uh, online learning? That's another tough one and probably something that lots of people are going to have to consider given the, the changes that have happened over the past, you know, year or so. I think probably more and more people are forced to think about going to an online program because there's probably more and more of those that are becoming options given, you know, pandemic world. So I'm going to be brutally honest. Um, for better or for worse. And I, I can see it in Joe's face. He's like, uh oh, what is she going to say? Um, I was always very skeptical of online programs. Um, and it was one of the reasons that I kind of sat in that limbo phase of considering the PhD for so long. I had done my master's program, brick and mortar, right? I moved to Florida 
which for so many reasons was so great. I mean, the weather primarily coming from Canada, but you, you build a community, right? You can have access immediately to all of your fellow um, students, right? Your classmates, you can drop into your advisor's office and ask a random question. You don't have to book that appointment. There are events that are set up. You go out together as a group. So I think that's one of the major benefits of the in-person program. There's, there's a lot of richness in terms of the interactions that you're having that still support your learning outside of a classroom, right? You're gonna get into debates and discussions over beers with some of your, your classmates. But I was pleasantly surprised at how well that was emulated and replicated in the Endicott program. Um, once I got to that point, it was no longer an option for me to uproot, right? I married, my husband is a full tenured faculty member, um, wasn't gonna uproot my entire life, you know, I'm gainfully employed. So it wasn't really an option to just go to brick and mortar program. So this option came along. Um, and I remember having a very uh, long conversation with Dr. Jim Carr about it. And he, he told me like, Dan, you know, the way this is set up, it's going to, it's going to be great. It's going to be fine. It's synchronous. Um, yes, it's online, but there is like, there was a residency component when I, when I did the program, um, I did get to go to campus. I went to the um, interview that Anna was talking about, definitely back up that recommendation. You need to go meet your cohort members, right? Go meet the faculty, ask them questions, check out the campus, um, spend some time on campus if you can. Um, but I didn't feel that there was anything lacking from the doc program, even though I did it online. And maybe it's because of the way it's structured and it is synchronous, right? So you're still in class all together at the same time. Um, that being said, I think we're incredibly lucky to have the technology that we do today to support that sort of learning environment, whereas it didn't exist previous. I think for me, um, I can't stress enough how valuable the in-person was for me. Um, <clears throat> at that time, right, I was working uh, clinical setting all day with my cohort, and then I would go to class that night with the same folks. And then after class, we would either study either at the bars or, you know, meet up with someone's house or, you know, something, whatever's going on, right? So it was a, it was a full 100%, right, emerge sort of experience to where, you know, the stuff that we were learning in class that day, I was able to apply it the next day or think about it at least, right? How would this apply within a clinical setting um, but then as we were, you know, away from our more formal settings or some of our professors, right, I was able to kind of get more um, in depth, more, you know, real life kind of, I would say loose examples, um, you know, with my peers, right, while we're out and about um, and so forth. So, I mean, that, to me, that's where most of my learning occurred was outside of class, kind of just sitting around really, really thinking about different ideas and how to and how to ask different research questions. And then how will those research questions unfold, right? What are the different variables to consider? What are the different uh, methods that we can use, right? The, the experimental designs. And then on top of that, right, we all challenge each other because that's 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 the name of our game, right? It's to say, okay, let's, let's try to pick out all the compounds from it, right? And then you have all these different excellent brains and excellent minds sort of thinking, right? But not necessarily criticizing but more of a constructive way to say, okay, hey, have you considered this? Have you thought about that? Well, this paper, so-and-so, you know, and that, and it's kind of one of those things where it's like, oh, I didn't think about that paper, or I forgot about that book, or, you know, whatever the case is, 
um, to where you can, you know, have that conversation, talk to someone eye to eye, right? Whereas, you know, versus virtual or email, right? Things can come up a different way. You might not understand the question, what they might be asking. Um, and so then you got to kind of go back and forth. Sometimes people don't respond to emails right away. Um, so then, you know, things kind of get um, kind of delayed in that way. However, uh, from the virtual side, um, I will speak from, from the instructor side of it. We just finished a, a, our first cohort of a five-week uh, training class for sports health and fitness within ABA. Um, and that was, it was, it was a pretty interesting experience from that because, because health, sports, and fitness is so new. Well, not really new, but it's, it's, it's just not as, you know, widely being done. Um, there's, there's, there's not a central hub for it. So you can't just say, you know, I want to go to this program to be with these folks to study, you know, ABA within health, sports, and fitness. So from the virtual side of it, right, that was a huge benefit and a huge plus for us. Um, to not only be able to connect with the individuals, you know, a, a, across the nation, really, so that we can teach within that cohort, but then also, right, having the virtual platform so that we can show and share our own training videos in our own, you know, type of way that we would um, uh, teach or provide feedback or to work with our clients or to write up nutrition plans, right, all of that would have, I mean, we would have been able to do it in person, right, but it's, it is a lot more efficient to say, okay, hey, just film yourself running through the exercise, film film yourself doing this move based on the task analysis or based on your task analysis, right, add that YouTube video or whatever the case was for that specific assignment or your or your project. So from the instructor side, right, from virtual, it was it was it was perfect. We were able to connect with our students and then from there our students were able to connect with each other, right? Through social media, through 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 email and you know through through the course we would we 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 were seeing some of our uh, students who were close to each other like get together and start working out together they were posting on, on online and stuff like that and so for for me from like I said from that perspective it was it was, it was a huge benefit uh, to be able to work virtually um, from the health and fitness side of it. I would add that, um, Wes, you were talking about how your course was uh, designed to be online. Um, I would maybe take that into consideration too, because the program that I'm in is a brick and mortar program that had to go online because of COVID. Um, and if you're looking to apply to a program that's currently online, but wasn't necessarily intended to be online, there might be some differences there. Um, so Danielle was talking about how Endicott was specifically set up to be an online synchronous program. That's different from my program. We were forced to do that. Um, so there, there might be more opportunities in those programs that have already been established as online programs versus we're temporarily online because of the current circumstances. Um, another thing I would add is that if you're interested in basic and translational research, um, it may be easier to get laboratory experience in a brick and mortar program. Um, like for example, UNT has a rat lab, um, which is very difficult to do online. Um, people actually go to the lab and kind of work with animals and have the operant chamber and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and there's also an EEG lab. Um, so there, there might be a, a wider variety of uh, laboratory and research experiences that you can get because there's just some labs that are harder to be online. You all bring up so many awesome points to consider. I think you thoroughly answered that question, probably in a way that, that whoever asked was not prepared. I, I can relate with some of the conflict with going into an online program because I was very hesitant about it 
And I think the point about the technology advancing um, is was really salient for me. Once I saw the technology uh, and the other part was the verbal community. So the advances in technology that allow certain things to happen, like what Wes was talking about, uh, and knowing that you can still have access to a verbal community in a similar way that you would in a brick and mortar or traditional um, program was very meaningful for me at least. But I think everything that you all said really comes down to there's advantages and limitations on both sides. And it's really, what are your goals and which one's going to help you advance those goals or which one's more suited to help you advance those goals more and really using that to help inform your decision. Uh, so to, oh, go ahead. You saw that. Wow. You're quick, you're quick on the on the trigger there. Um, I was just going to say one other thing that sprang to mind. This is related to some of the points that Wes has brought up is, is that diversity issue. So coming from Canada, you know, I'm an immigrant to the United States. And one of the one of the things that I struggled with after my master's program was the cost of tuition, right? Whereas I think these online options kind of equal out the playing field a little bit. And we did see some of that play out in our cohort at Endicott where we had, you know, one of our cohort members was logging into class from Dubai, right? So you can be coming in from all over the world. And I think that adds some richness to the experience as well, because you get very different viewpoints. So I just, I just wanted to bring that up. I forgot to speak to it earlier. I think that's a wonderful point to add. And is and the online programs are probably increasing accessibility worldwide um, for people who might not be able to relocate for various reasons. So uh, again, the advantages and limitations on, on both sides. I don't want anyone walking away from this saying, hey, they said not to do this or to do this. Um, but I, I think really being analytical about it and looking at um, the, the, like I said, the advantages and disadvantages and how they align with your goals are great. Uh, which ties right. I'm going to try to bring in two questions at the same time. We're really testing my skills today. Um, so as a student who is now in a, a master's program, find the contents very much related solely to terminology, but doesn't seem very practice um, and doesn't seem very practice in bettering my skill. Uh, I aim to be a BCBA so I can move on, but where, how do you recommend improving skills? And I'm going to try to, so it, I think that question is really getting at, so where can I go to improve my skills where I don't necessarily feel like some of the academic things are translating to practice? And I'll try to tie that into uh, the second question by the same person. Um, what is valuable out there and how do I find it? I think that how do I find it is probably the crux to that question and probably the most difficult Part of that question. And I think it ties into what you the, the last conversation about what you really look for uh, in, in different programs and what you look for versus for online versus in person as well. So basically, where would you recommend going and how would you recommend finding where to go is probably a more important part of that or might be more helpful to anyone who's listening. Tough questions. These are they're throwing some hard ones at you all. I like it. That was a really good question. Um, right? The first thing that came to my mind, and sorry, I don't mean to jump jump in before anyone else. Uh, first thing that came to my mind was the same thing that Danielle said, but also what 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 Justin was saying as well. It's more about the people and the community that that you're involved with, right, and your mentors because a lot of your coursework will be directed towards right terminology, um, 
and and you know reading articles and writing papers stuff like that but you know the, the biggest question and the biggest hurdle that i run into with some of my supervisees that i'm training is applying that but also right um applying and knowing what to do in the moment right being able to assess the moment right and then being able to identify right the functions and then determine right which um sequence of prompting strategies should we use and you know you know i can go on and on but uh, a lot of it for me was tagging myself to a, a, a mentor. So, um, you know, just to be very candid here, um, I mean, in my graduate career, my second year, um, I you know my first year, I started off with, with, with the mentor. He was a second year graduate student, so just one year above me. Uh, but then when he was, um, he, had, he had left, you know, switched jobs. Uh, Joe was in the same site that I was working at, and I came up to him, <laughs> looked him in his eyes, and said, "Hey, Joe, I need a mentor. I need I need someone to help kind of guide me through this, um, so that I can kind of make those connections." And you know, Joe and I established that relationship, and and then from from there, right, I was then able to really, you know, put the foot to the pavement and really dig deeper into okay, you know, outside of class, outside of just these terms, right? What does it really look like? And it was he was. <laughs> It was frustrating at times, right? Because he, you know, I was, I was, I was used to, you know, being spoon fed, like, okay, this is what you need to do. This, this is how you do it. Now just do it. But the question that he was always asking me, he was like, well, what should you do? Or, you know, not, not what do you think I'm going to do, but what do you think you should do? And then, and it, and it, and it, and it, and it really made me think, um, about everything that I was learning in class, how I would write up my protocols, how I would write up my training programs, um, and then, you know, let, let alone, right, into implementing within uh, the clinical setting or in person, right, I'm thinking to myself, okay, what should I do based on the contingencies or based on the environment um, that, I'm, that, that I'm in right now, and then taking all these different in, environmental variables into uh, consideration, Right. This is then how I need to move uh, from here. So I think I, I, I think it's all about the community, and I think it's all about the people that you pair yourself with, um, and make sure that those people that you pair yourself with, they, you know, that they really have the best interests at heart, and you can trust them, and they're and that they're going to actually challenge you to um, you know to make you learn, to make you um, you know do a little bit of digging into literature, um, read a little bit, right, present. Um, and then, you know, really get your hands dirty with it. I really liked the example that you gave of your mentor being a fellow student, um, because I think sometimes when we think about mentor, we automatically go to like, oh, my graduate advisor, the person that's advising my research. Um, and those people are usually very busy and they have lots of um, things on their plate and they don't always have time for what you were saying that like in the moment direct supervision, um, some do and that's awesome, um, but that isn't always the case. And so I would echo the um, point about finding somebody in whatever I would, first of all, I would say definitely have like a practical site. Like it doesn't have to be a full-time job. Like maybe it's like five hours a week or something if that's all you can fit in, but like some sort of it doesn't even have to be paid, like some sort of job where you are actually changing an organism's behavior. Um, it can be any organism, any setting, but just finding a setting that works for you and then having somebody there. It doesn't have to be your advisor. It could just be 
um, your boss. Um, a lot of times if you're going to like a brick and mortar program, a lot of the places that um, kind of are affiliated with the university will have like alumni from that university um, or professors at that university who will serve as your um, mentor. And I would, yeah, I would say the most important thing is while you are engaging in the act of changing um, someone's behavior, there's somebody there who is watching you and providing that in-person feedback is, or even a video, video works too, watching videos with you. Um, but just having that kind of in the moment feedback is really important. And, and I'll add to that, Anna, is that uh, it seems like part of the question is like, it, I'm, I'm stuck in terminology, but I'm not seeing the connection. I think having a, a verbal community where you can start to talk about how behavior analysis connects to other like sort of real life situations, actual actual behavior that is being observed. I think that's also important as, as you're progressing in your program. So that's not just, I'm lost in the terminology and the conceptual side of things. Um, now I can actually bring it to life because I see, oh, this is an example of, of negative reinforcement at play. So I think um, having a practical experience where you can actually have some of those conversations and bring the terminology to life um, just enhances that uh, ability to get away from being just stuck in the terminology. Yeah, I would 1 million percent agree with that. Um, and I think that speaks to the value of, you know, that supervised experience, right? And what Wes said, like the who, find yourself a supervisor who has a good reputation as a clinician, but also who's going to train, help train that functional interdependence between your academic and your clinical repertoire. Because what I see, and I've trained almost 40 folks through a BCBA now, is that you know, these buddy behavior analysts, there's a, there's a disconnect. These, these are functionally independent repertoires and you need to um, help them make those connections between what they're learning in class and what is going on in the real world and how the two relate to each other. So when you see a real problem, go back to the Skinner box, so to speak, take from the Skinner box and bring it back to the real world is this bi-directional relationship. So we have another question, uh, which I think is a really another amazing question. I don't want to say awesome because then uh, we're saying that word a lot today. Um, was there anything that discouraged you? And I'm going to add to that. Anything discouraged you or anything really difficult along the way? And how do you overcome those obstacles? They're not holding back on, on these questions. That's, an, that's another good one. Wow. I, I have plenty to say about this. <laughs> Oh my God. So, I mean, here's, here's the thing. I think um, as many of us aren't just graduate students, you know, we have, believe it or not, we have lives outside of graduate school. Um, so I myself have a significant other and then I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And, um, you know, when I was in, in, in my first year, um, as we all know, COVID-19 hit. Um, and, and, you know, that complicated factors. Unfortunately, we, you know, we, we lost family members and then we moved from the West Coast to the East Coast to be closer to family. And then, you know, we, we had other complications that happened, changed jobs. And so what I would say is that um, almost, I think inevitably, there are gonna be um, some level of obstacles, maybe not as intense as what I necessarily experienced. But I think the key is, is, is realizing that um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be okay. And that you, you can kind of ride different waves of ups and downs. I think the greatest advice that I got about grad school was accept imperfection. 
And I think that is like so key. I think as you're going through the program, you want like, oh, I want everything to be perfect. I want this to be like that. And that doesn't mean to sort of run away from, from seeking excellence, but accepting that, all right, you know what? You're not always gonna have the absolute perfect manuscript or the absolute perfect presentation. Um, seek it, seek it out, try. But you know what? Accepting imperfection, I think, is is absolutely critical to like realizing that it's not always going to be exactly as you as you paint the picture to be. So um, that's the advice that I would give: is that there are going to be obstacles, and and just um just just ride those waves as you go out. The wave goes up, but it also comes down, and then it goes back up. That's um, I think that's just how it is in life in general. So that's my general advice. I have another little phrase like accept imperfection. I would say the comparison is a thief of joy. Um, like if there are always going to be people in your program that you think are doing way cooler things than you and are way smarter than you. And if you're always comparing your experience to other people's experiences, it's going to ruin, it's going to ruin your time in grad school. Um, that's just like just, I, and I know that that's really hard advice like to apply, um, but just kind of being confident in your own journey and, and accepting like what you can handle and how that might be different from what other people can handle. And it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you or that you're not as smart as them or whatever. It just means that like in, a, in order for you to perform at the level that you want to, then maybe you can't take on as many things as other people can. Um, so just being okay with, what is feasible for you and what feels good for you. I think one of the biggest things that helped me was, and of course I had the benefit of being married to someone who had done grad school, right? And I think the best piece of advice he gave me was try to anticipate all the obstacles and eliminate them now. And so a lot of it was preparing my environment and those around me for what I was about to enter and experience and setting those contingencies and setting the stage for, you know, having a conversation with my employer who's incredibly supportive of telling her like, hey, like I'm not gonna be as available as I have been the past X number of years because this is my schedule, this is my plan, right? Kind of detailing out a plan to manage it all. I think optimizing your time, practicing some of that before you go into grad school, become a really good time and task manager. Um, and kind of garner the support of everyone around you that's going to be affected by this because you're going to need them to be understanding and supportive, especially during those moments that Austin was talking about when you're in a downswing and you will hit those downswings and you will get through it. But laying the groundwork for that helps a lot. So 